0: I do believe you know we can turn things around still and I think change is exponential and you know Mm -hmm. human nature the the way we work together means we can change direction almost overnight.
1: Welcome to the 93rd episode of the Nice Work Podcast, a podcast of the Super Nice Club, where, as you probably know by now, we are just trying to make the world 10% nicer by every means necessary. Really hope you join us. I'm your host, Todd Brilliant, and today we're going to talk with super nice human, Richard Vevers. Uh He's the founder of The Ocean Agency, the creative agency for, drum roll, bum bum, bum The Ocean, yeah. The oceans, all of them. Uh, Richard is a great guy whose primary mission is nothing less than saving the world's oceans, which, you know, as you should know, is pretty much synonymous with saving the world. Uh, we, we treat the oceans like they're a massive outhouse, meaning we literally shit where we eat, and that means, you know, we're kind of poisoning ourselves. And if you're eating sushi right now when you listen to this, my apologies. Sorry, not sorry. Uh, Richard's Ocean Agency is a unique nonprofit accelerating ocean conservation action through creativity, technology, and powerful partnerships. You'll learn more about all of those in the podcast. Stay tuned. Uh, before he got into the ocean and coral reef conservation work that he does now, Richard worked at some of the top London ad agencies, did the whole agency life, which is fun, but it's also a super big grind that eventually saps the soul of Uh, pretty much of the best, brightest creatives in the world. So when it did that to Richard, he switched gears hard, got his soul back, and became an underwater photographer. Yeah, it's this background, the ad agency and the underwater photography, that guided his unique creative and business-thinking approach to ocean conservation. His imagery, his photos uh, reveal what's happening to our oceans. They're some of the most viewed underwater imagery of all time, and his ideas project, and public speaking have made him a leading voice in the fight to save coral reefs. Folks, think of the coral reefs as the proverbial canaries in the coal mines. When they're dead, we're dead. No joke, no exaggeration. So Richard's work is pretty important. I'd say it's vastly more important and significant than the work done by, say, let me pull a name out of a hat, Ah, Jeff Bezos. So, you know, you might want to get behind it. Maybe maybe drop your Prime membership and shoot that money over to something that heals rather than destroys. Uh, Just a thought, you know, all good though. You do you. Okay, Richard's major successes include, this is a cool list, uh, inventing the SV2 camera and taking Google Street View underwater, Uh, pioneering virtual reality ocean education currently available to over 90 million kids, nine zero million. Uh, The XL Caitlin catlin sorry richard the xl catlin sea view survey the most comprehensive underwater photographic survey and record of coral reefs with over 1 million images captured and analyzed um number four this is a list revealing the crisis facing coral reefs in the netflix original documentary chasing coral winner of the 2018 emmy for outstanding nature documentary i've watched it the link to that documentary is in the show notes it's beautiful check it out tonight Uh, 50 Reefs, a global scientific study to help target and inspire effective conservation support and action that resulted in $86 million in funding for leading science and conservation organizations. Yeah, Richard did that. And uh, he put together the Glowing Campaign, a global campaign to accelerate coral reef conservation action and funding through popular influence and business involvement. And the guy is just getting started. So it's a real treat this episode. I hope you love getting to know Richard. Uh, What else? Almost forgot. In the talk, I mentioned a script about a monster movie set in a great plastic patch that uh, I wrote some time ago with my writing partner. If you'd like to read it, I don't care. You can read it. Just holler. I'll send you a copy. I'll send you a PDF. I'm not saying it's a great film. It was commissioned originally as a B-movie, so it's kind of written like one. But it's entertaining if you're into hot college kids getting slaughtered by monsters underwater while being chased down by rogue assassins who are after their high-tech answer to the world's plastic pollution problem. Yeah, it's called Dead Seas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'll send it to you. Why not? All right, let's do this. Turn off everything else, tune out the rest of the world, and drop in to Nice Work with super nice Richard Fevers. Richard, Richard Fevers, welcome to the Nice Work podcast. Really glad to have you on. That's great to be invited. So I hear an accent. I'm taking it. You're probably not in LA because you (laughs) said it wasn't afternoon where you are. So where are you? Need to know where you're at.
0: Um, well, I'm actually based in, in the ocean state, seems like the the perfect place for me, um, but I've got a bit of a funny accent, I'm originally from London, and then went to Australia for about 15 years, where I've kind of picked up this twang
1: at yeah. the end
0: of my sentences, so uh, uh, I a bit of a strange accent as a result. Where, what city are you in? Uh, I was in Sydney. You're in Sydney, okay. Yeah. So I have I a lot of family in Perth. Yeah, so I'm now now in Newport in Rhode Island. Oh, you're in Rhode Island. Yeah. Oh, okay. So that's
1: not a Rhode Island accent. Yeah. Now it makes sense yes. to me. <laughs> I have relatives who are uh, Australian, but live a lot in uh, in the UK. So it is. It's kind of a and in between. Americans have a hard enough time figuring out the difference between British accents and Australian accents to begin
0: with, and then when you put them together like that, exactly. Genius. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Everyone thinks I'm Australian or. or just got a bizarre accent.
1: So you have the Ocean Agency. I want to read what I read, which got me excited when I first was told about you and what you're doing. And it's just right on your website. It says, we're a different kind of nonprofit, a strategic creative agency working for the biggest client of them all, the ocean. Once I read that, I was like, wow, that's a (laughs) hell of a lead. And what's that all about? So just, let's start there. What's that all about?
0: It's, um, my background is advertising. I did did 10 years of advertising in in London uh, until I had a really bad meeting one day um, and decided there and then to become an underwater photographer. And that took me on this big journey of sort of discovery. And I I realized, um, you know, there's so many issues facing the ocean, um, but there was a big communication gap. you know ninety nine point nine percent of people don't dive and and probably will never go underwater. So it was really I felt as sort of almost an advertising issue. Um, we need to sort of engage the the creatives and communication skills that are in that advertising a- agency and bring it into ocean conservation. And yeah, you know, I set up a not- for-profit to do just that. So working with my old advertising friends, bringing those communication skills into uh, ocean conservation to hopefully accelerate ocean science and conservation.
1: And was that something that people thought, oh, of course, it makes a lot of sense, Richard, we get it. Or were you met with a little bit of like, hey, come on, you know, we've got big clients trying to sell stuff. That's where the money's at.
0: (laughs) Well, I think we've got reactions from both sides. Um, Mm -hmm. Everyone knows there's a communication issue Uh, Around the oceans, when you work in ocean science and ocean and conservation, so there's a real need for it. Um, But bringing those skills in, um, there's almost yeah, it's 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 not something that's normally done. And yeah, the approach that we have of working with businesses to. Uh, come up with solutions, um, isn't the standard approach. And certainly it's very difficult from a funding model. It's it's very different from all sorts of angles, um, which is why there's no other sort of not for profits out doing what we're doing. What you do, yeah. So tell me how you went to get did you
1: try to win clients up against other agencies the same way you always had? Just like, hey, you know, we're gonna go in with a pitch but it's going to be angled toward doing some good with the ocean? Or did you have a whole different way in to landing clients?
0: It really was a, a whole different way in. Um, so, yeah, you know, we kind of looked at it as if you are a an agency and the ocean's your client. And so we needed to understand what the, the client's problems are. And one mm-hmm. of the, the biggest issues was, you know, people don't get to sort of understand the ocean. So, you know, the first project we came up with was, well, let's allow people to do that. Um, Let's make it easy for people to explore the oceans. And so we decided we would team up with Google um, to take Google Street View underwater as a solution Mm. to the problem that the ocean has. And so all through kind of our journey, it's been about trying to understand what are the big fundamental issues that are holding back the ocean and then finding creative ways of addressing those, those issues.
1: That's fantastic. The underwater street view. I, I just imagine like the I'm dating myself as I always do on this podcast, but that speed racer car, you know, they could drive and jump into the water and then it, it, it had, no, it wasn't like that.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, it wasn't far <laughs> off. To be honest. It was uh, this, this project was so much fun. Um, so you know, Google Street View's got its uh, its cars and they've got to be looking sort of almost uh, ultra friendly. So they've got to be bright colours. Everyone's got to not think they're being spied on. Otherwise we would stone them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. Uh, whereas underwater, you know, we designed a camera, but we could have it look however we wanted because there's, there's no one going to be complaining underwater. So we had these kind of military grade scooters with the cameras mounted on the front. And then we're doing these epic dives, um, just going to places that people have never even visited before, let alone photographed. Um, And it was an amazing experience, and it was just fun designing this camera with a complete um, free reign um, in terms of how we could approach it. And um, it was, you know, the the camera was all about getting the maximum media appeal. So we wanted as maximum media exposure around the project to then p- get people engaged with the imagery and the, the, the final result.
1: Is that what led you to getting into sort of VR work with the oceans or was, you know, like once you saw that, you thought, God, what if we can make this more immersive or was yes. well, yeah. yeah. Okay.
0: So, so yeah, the, we, we first took the, the imagery and, uh, that 360 imagery, when you first see it, um, you know, underwater, you realise VR was made for underwater. Mm-hmm. You know, normally, in a, a traditional VR environment, you're looking around the horizon. Um, you don't really look up and you don't look down too much. Um, whereas in the water, that's exactly what you want to do: is, is you're looking up, up and down, and all over the place because you know the animals can be anywhere, and and it's yeah. that immersive environment that VR was you know, really built for. And so it allows people to have this virtual reality experience of going into the ocean um, and exploring uh, anywhere that we've been. So especially for kids, this was just mind-blowing to see their response when they suddenly get to go on a virtual dive um, and see turtles in their natural environment. They get to see sharks, they get to see all these animals and you just see the the joy on the face. and. This, this almost visceral experience that they get when they go on a virtual dive. Um, we're getting them at the right moment in time to hopefully get them hooked on the oceans for the rest of their lives.
1: It's so true. I, so I was given one of those Oculus headset things for Christmas a couple of years ago. Never found anything that, that did much for me. My, my uh, seven and nine-year-old sons, nothing, the games, they didn't care. But when I put them underwater... I think it was a Nat Geo or, or somebody yes. had a that's what they're like, well, this is really cool. And to this day, they don't the, the only thing they that has interested them with the, the VR goggles is the underwater experiences. And because it's just like you said, oh my god, there's a whale shark, there's a this, and and it's you know, it's outer space, but real, right? Down, I mean yeah. outer space is real as well i just mean more it's more more relatable i think yeah yes it's like outer
0: space but with animals Um, there we go (laughs) with alien life and that's the 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 amazing thing about being underwater i mean it's this i mean i love being underwater because there are just so many crazy creatures that you never even hear of but when you get to you know just start looking underwater you get to see these incredible sights which are just on our doorstep but is it is still difficult to go and and become a diver and and experience it mm-hmm. you know firsthand so this technology allows you to do some of that exploration just in an accessible way to get hopefully you in the water you know in a physical way
1: what's the most unusual thing that you've seen underwater do you have a singular like oh my god that's the craziest moment oh, oh,
0: oh. Uh, there's there's lots of, yeah that you could um put into that category there was a, a favorite dive site of mine which is in in sydney harbour and it's this this site that um attracts all this just incredibly weird life and you get these um you know i mean i could name a lot of diff- different creatures on there this dive but Um, You know, for example, you get these anglerfish, and they're the shallow water anglerfish, which are a little bit similar to the ones that you see in Nemo, the deep water ones with the big mouths. And these things, they just look bizarre. They've just got this massive mouth, and they can eat something twice their own size. So they just sort of expand around it, um, and it all happens in sort of well under a second. And suddenly they just pounce and just jump over some a fish twice their size and eat it. Uh, and wow. it's just the most amazing thing to watch. Um, but this is just one of those bizarre creatures. You get loads of these kind of weird worm type slugs that live under the sand and they just poke their little eyes out or their antenna um, and you see it. So you brush away the, the sand and then they're just these incredible animals that, you know we we're used to um, slugs on land, which are kind of brown and black and and very dull. These mm-hmm. things are just incredible colours um, because they they take the colour from what they eat. So if they eat oh. purple sponges, for example, they become purple. And just uh, yeah. what if humans did that? I know that's what. Wouldn't that be interesting? Yeah. yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I know what you had for lunch,
1: Richard. I know. <laughs> <laughs> the colors though, God, it's it really is the colors, isn't it? You don't you just don't see colors anywhere like you see in the oceans. The, these these vibrant, incredible colors that I, I mean the human eye probably isn't our, our, our eye language connection isn't advanced enough to really even differentiate yeah. all the colors that are there. Right. Yes,
0: and, and when you start to see some of the crazy animals like um uh, the mantis shrimp which has the most sophisticated eyes on the planet you know they work independently and they can see they've you know, um, they they see 16 different um, they have 16 different receptors that you know rather than just the, of so the the red green and blue that we have um, I think I got that right um, but it's yeah just incredible the, the the range of colors they can see you um, all the colors that we, yeah, would have no idea is even there. Yeah.
1: That's got to be kind of thrilling for you after after all the years of work you've been doing and all the time, the hours, the the months you've spent underwater to see this the outpouring of underwater cinema that's happening right now, right? All yes. of these incredible nature documentaries underwater where people, uh, you just watch, I've watched... Well, I've watched myself, but I've watched, you watch others. You watch their jaws drop, and you don't. People's jaws don't drop anymore watching anything. You know, the coolest sci-fi, Marvel, whatever movies. You stick them in front of, you know, one of these underwater films that are being shot right now in whatever twelve k, one thousand k. But it's incredibly detailed. You know, um, it's 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 thrilling. Uh, how how do you feel that this? increased exposure to really quality footage do you feel like it's making an impact that the, that your work is is um being are people more open to your work do you think They're like oh yeah i saw that i've i've experienced this you know
0: yeah i'd say it's less about the quality of mm-hmm. the the image and you know I mean, you look at the BBC Blue Planets and just unbelievable footage, but you're not connected to it. So it's like kind of um, this surreal world that you can watch it for a bit and it's amazing. But once you've watched five or ten minutes of it, it's it's harder to sort of keep engaged in the same way. But what's Mm. really uh, interesting to me is that the new storytelling that's coming in. Um, with stories like My Octopus Teacher, where mm-hmm. it's character-driven and people yeah. can relate to the the characters um, and the stories, and it really resonates. And so, you know, when you've got characters that are exploring the oceans on their doorstep, it really invites other people to want to get involved and really understand the the stories. And that's why I think yeah that film was so successful is because it had such a strong narrative. And I think people are learning the secret to um, doing documentaries about the ocean now um, that will engage an audience um, in a way that hasn't been possible in the past.
1: And that's where your gift from the agency world, you know surrounding yourself with master storytellers, I guess it's fair to say, um, really brings the ability to make some big change. Do you have some initiatives that you've worked on that you think are, are just your favorites, the most successful things you want to highlight? You have the 50 reefs initiative, for example, um, which is looks online pretty stellar, like pretty amazing and successful, but
0: yeah. And um, well, the, the, the first one was, you know, initially when we decided to take Google street view underwater, uh, we didn't know where that was gonna go. And so yeah, I thought, you know, from a communications background, this would be sort of a bit of a game changer. Um, mm-hmm. and people get really engaged with the imagery and it would automatically lead to conservation action. But, you know, <laughs> I soon realized the hard way that it's really difficult to engage people. Yes, they were looking at the the virtual reality imagery, they were getting interested in it, but they weren't getting emotionally connected. Um, so it was, we needed to sort of take it to the next level in terms of the storytelling. And so, you know, the next project that we, we really had was, um, when we spoke to the scientists about kind of the need for kind of, uh, science at scale to be able to sort of reveal, um, you know, what was happening in the oceans and then so specifically coral reefs, it was a, a project that was all about revealing what was happening to, coral reefs because of climate change mm-hmm. and this is you know the underwater heat waves are killing you know coral reefs because they are the most vulnerable ecosystem to climate change and we wanted to tell this story because it wasn't being told um and you know that was when sort of i connected with uh, jeff walowski who is yeah, this master storyteller um and uh, you know a director of a film i watched called chasing ice and he did a phenomenal job with telling that story. And I knew he could tell a brilliant story with with this. And so, you know, we then um, went racing around the world chasing this underwater heat wave, which was, you know, the worst underwater heat wave um, that's ever been recorded. And it allowed us to reveal this in a really interesting way that would engage audiences, um, rather than it just being sort of another news story, which is uh, often sort of how it is, you know, these types of things are communicated.
1: Well, real quick, what what exactly is an underwater heat wave? How long do they last? Is it a global thing?
0: So this is um, a learning curve that I went on, you know, when I first um, sort of really got into ocean conservation, I had no idea what was happening in the oceans. Um, the, The challenge with climate change is most of the heat from climate change is absorbed by the ocean. You know, 93% is absorbed by the ocean and it sits there in that upper ocean level. So it's really heating the the upper ocean and it's having a dramatic impact on ecosystems like coral reefs. Right. So um, what you find is you get these. So we had the first global heat wave um, back in uh, sort of 1998. And that was sort of a, a global heat wave that tracked around the, the planet, killing coral reefs all around the equator. Uh, sort of in the in the tropics and then there was another one back in uh, sort of 2005 and then we had the third global bleaching event which was the the one that we were uh, following so this was sort of started in 2014 and went through to 2017 Hmm. and these underwater heat waves can have dramatic effects so the one we were chasing um when it hit the Great Barrier Reef over a sort of a two-year period, it came and sort of hit it twice, and 50% of the corals on the Great Barrier Reef were lost during that period. And that's sort of how intense these heat waves are and how much of a devastating they, effect they can have on, on um, sort of ecosystems like coral reefs.
1: And so, do you get advanced notice? Did you know there's, a, oh, we're in the middle of a heat wave, we should go document this? Like how, how like, you know, when there's a heat wave on land, the the forecasters are like, oh, there's a heat wave coming, and you know you can get out there and, and start talking about how do you know that it's coming? Do you have any idea how long? You said it lasted three years.
0: Yes, so it started right at the end of 2014, and we, you know, got some of the first footage of it impacting sort of reefs in American Samoa, and mm-hmm. then we were sort of responding to this whenever there was sort of a, a heat warning. So mm-hmm. there is um, you you monitor this the sea surface temperatures. And then right. once the sea surface temperatures heated for a certain period of time and they can predict um, these, these models, then, you know, it's likely to impact um, coral reefs if there are coral reefs in that location. OK. Then, then we speak to people on the ground and you've literally got a day or two to get out there to photograph it. Uh, so when, you're,
1: you're, you're storm chasers, just like exactly. terrestrial, you're storm chasers, but using boats in place. Yes.
0: And the, <laughs> the interesting thing was um, you yeah, the same heat that causes the bleaching underwater causes the storms above. So um, in 50 percent of the cases, we had to either pull the pin because there was a big you know category four or category five um, hurricane that um, yeah, was nuts. formed as a result of the heat.
1: And so what was the end product out there from all of this?
0: Well, it started off with um, just the press releases about this. And we got a lot of media coverage about what was happening to coral reefs because we had imagery that was imagery that people hadn't seen before. So these epic shots of bleaching at scale, so these reefs that went really stark white. And there were some, you know, we got some images of before and after um, in some locations, so we got a lot of media um, based on that imagery, and then we also got the the film. So we were documenting this over the um, the three year period, and it became um, the film Chasing Coral. And that Chasing Coral f- film was was phenomenally successful um, in terms of the um, it won the Emmy for Outstanding uh, Nature Documentary back in two thousand and seventeen. Um, and it's you know just won a lot of awards because of the the great storytelling by the director and his team.
1: And chasing coral is streaming everywhere,
0: yeah. Yes, it's it's actually um, on Netflix, so it's a Netflix original documentary. But it's also Netflix has made it freely available for anyone who hasn't got um, Netflix. So it's one of the few films that Netflix has made available on on YouTube. So it's free to watch.
1: Now, folks, when you're listening to Richard here, and you're just Remember what we talked about at the very beginning of this of this talk—that his client really is the ocean, which is pretty outrageous. I mean, and it's pretty outstanding when you consider, like, okay, so this is the client, the ocean, and we're now going out and getting media attention. We're winning Emmys. We're doing all of these things to to satisfy the client's demands, and the client is demanding what respect <laughs>
0: um,
1: <laughs> for to begin with, uh, uh, and and uh, awareness you know, of the other sentient creatures and and systems on the planet. How do you feel? So, so thank you, first of all, for doing this work. As someone who's done a lot of work in the nonprofit industry, overlapping a lot with what you're doing. I know that it's, it's rare to be in a position that you're in where you actually get positive feedback, you know, like the work, it can be really doom and gloom. You know, a lot of it can be really, it's challenging, right? But you're getting positive feedback. You're winning
0: awards. So
1: Has the client ever said anything to you?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, the client just sort of rewards me whenever I can get into the ocean. Um, And it hasn't been for a while now because of the pandemic. But, you know, for me, I get into the ocean and I'm just totally relaxed and totally inspired. And you realize this is the most amazing place on the planet. Um, And it is just there to be explored and um, I just get an immense amount of sort of pleasure and joy just being in the ocean. Um, so that's kind of the reward that I get.
1: So when you were a kid growing up, you grew up around the ocean, yeah?
0: Now I actually grew up in London. Um, oh, but so when when did your love of being in the water start? I've I've absolutely no idea why I was born with this this love of the ocean. Um, okay. My parents were up in so my grandparents were up in in Scarborough, which is a seaside town in the north of England, and um, I used to love going to just the seaside and and just seeing the ocean. And I've always wanted to go diving, so I started at the earliest possible opportunity and and it's just grown and grown you you went diving up there i started Dad, would in, seem wicked cold and in rough. scotland yes really winter with a wetsuit oh. that froze in between dives wow.
1: was oh, no. whiskey
0: that got me through it
1: <laughs> <laughs> so like in dry suits and everything they have did they dive in scotland is there like a scottish diving community
0: oh yes they're they're, oh, they're rugged that's
1: there. rugged people
0: Yeah, yeah so we were in yeah. wet suits and it was painful, but uh, in, incredibly enjoyable. You just have amazing life. You have these sea lions that, that swim alongside you in fast currents and it's just great diving out there.
1: Really? In Scotland? Yeah, I would just imagine it being all grey and tan and hard and cold and you'd get out of the water with you know, three inches of hair across your entire body. Yes. (laughs) "Ah, I'm Scottish now.
0: Yes. It was, it was certainly a pleasant experience sort of moving to Australia and (laughs) the uh, the Great Barrier Reef after Scotland. But, um, I still love that kind of temperate water diving.
1: So this is so cool. This is what I love. I love it when people have a passion, a life passion for you. You know, I just, you love the ocean. You have a, it resonates with you. It fulfills you. You feel at home in it. Clearly feel attached to it, connected to it. Um, And then you have your career, which isn't directly related to your passion, but during the years in your career, you find, wow, I've built all these skills that I can now apply to my lifelong passion. I can marry these things for you. It's the ocean and agency work, Right. For other people, it could be anything, and thats it's just such a big reminder, folks, that whatever your your personal passion is, odds are pretty good that whatever you're doing for a career, if if it's not the same thing, there's a way to marry those two. It's up to you to figure out how, but Richard took a big leap of faith here. Like, you said you had a bad meeting, you know, and you're like, "This, this sucks, this isn't for me, and you turned to your passion, and you took your skills, and you did that, did you ever think during that that sort of that transition, that leap of faith that you might not stick the landing? Was it scary for you at all? Or were you always like, ha, I
0: got this? <laughs> um, well, I've always been an optimist. So I kind of figured it would work out, but looking back, it was crazy at the time. Um, you know, To go from a well-paid advertising job, I had a nice kind of comfortable life in London to having no income, suddenly, you know, I I decided to become an underwater photographer, which was kind of where I started off. And uh, but with no, I've never taken a, a camera underwater, um, so I had to learn how to be an underwater photographer. And then I realized all my competition were independently wealthy, so <laughs> yeah, it was that gear is not cheap, unfair fair game. Uh, so I realized you couldn't really make a living out of that. Um, and so it just morphed into, you know, just having to find a, you know, where you should end up. And, you know, fortunately, kind of life seems to um, give you the opportunities. When you take this leap of faith, uh, opportunities come to you. And I was relatively, um, you know, quickly, I, I found where, you know, I could really bring in my past skills, To make a difference and and you know we got you know huge success early on
1: well that that's great um and i like what you said there which is that when you take the leap of faith opportunities will come to you that's presuming that you're doing it with your eyes open right uh and with a positive mindset yes right not not um
0: in fear exactly and i think you know what's important is is just that mindset it is the enthusiasm people um, if you are passionate about subjects and you want to make something happen, people will want to support you um, and they will buy that passion. And so, you know, with the projects, they were crazy projects, really. You know, the, the idea of taking Google Street View underwater. Um mm. Who's going to support that when, you know, <laughs> Google's clearly trying to do that kind of work themselves. And, you know, we didn't have the experience. But if you've got the passion and the kind of the motivation, I think, you know, that's what people really resonate to. And and you just find things happen.
1: Now, did you just cold call Google or did you have a, a connection?
0: No, I cold called them. Um, and Fantastic. Yes. I love it. <laughs> Yeah, Uh, and kind of got a little bit of skepticism early on because um, there had been a team trying to sort of make it work, Um, but, you know, I explained, you know, the approach that I would take and, um, you know, I was working with some of the pioneers of underwater photography who I'd met through kind of my early photography days Uh, and, you know, just set up those early meetings and we just made it happen. Eventually ended up going out to um, California to have the meetings at Google head office, and got to meet yeah you know, some of their senior management and um, I had a really interesting meeting um, there because they looked at me and I've I've never met smarter people in my life I don't think and they just saw kind of um, all the you know artist impressions of the camera that I produced and they just turned around to me and said. Um, so you haven't actually done anything yet. And I went, I guarantee I'll make it work. And I said, okay, you've got our support. So it was that belief in the the outcome that they were interested in. And I think that's kind of the key learning that I got out that whole experience is just believe in, in what you're gonna do and, and then it will happen. And say yes, yeah, just keep saying yes.
1: Yes, you'll get it together. So what are you seeing from your perch in Rhode Island, on the horizon. Do you feel, and you're an optimist, I get it, but do you feel like we're heading in the right direction uh, as a species when it comes to caring for and being, uh, uh, what's the word? I'm blown it, in terms of caring for the ocean?
0: I'd say we're, we're still heading in the wrong direction, but I am an optimist and, and I see us coming out of the curve. So, you know, we've been on this downward sort of plummet for a long period of time, Mm -hmm. but I think it's changing. I think society is changing, and I think it's being driven by the younger generation who now insist that companies aren't just sustainable, they're actually doing good, um, and they won't work for companies that aren't, um, and everything is changing because of these kind of um, changes in society. And I think people are, are waking up to issues like climate change. They're not waking up to the ocean yet. Still got a long way to go in terms of communication to make people understand it, almost the ocean is the the bigger underlying kind of challenge that we've got. Um, so we've got a long way to go. Um, but I do believe you know we can turn things around still. And I think change is exponential. And you know mm-hmm. human nature, the the way we work together means we can change direction almost overnight you know you look at issues such as smoking is a great example where you know one day everyone was against you know regulating people from smoking and then suddenly almost everyone turns anti smoking in certain societies and we can have this shift almost overnight in behavior um, because it's this perception that everyone else is doing so, if we really um, put our minds to it, we can change direction very, very quickly, and I believe that will happen.
1: I really like what you said there about how people, younger generation um, at this point primarily, are choosing their employers as well. Because there's there's a little bit of a shift there, at least in in, in some industries where the the employees. Have a lot of power now, more than employers, because the employees have the skill sets the employers are desperate for, and they can choose who they want to work for, right? So it's a reminder you have to choose wisely, right? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Choose the companies that are that are that are actually doing good, that are actually trying to become a net positive, knowing full well that in the now, yeah, most of us a lot of what we're doing it might be a net negative, but we're trying to reverse that course, right? We're slowing the negative so that we can get to a standstill and then move over into the into the positive, right? Yeah. Um, I love that. And I love also what you said or what your copywriter said, if it's your copywriter, not you. Kudos. Conservation organizations usually focus on creating outrage about ocean issues to get support, but we found that creating outrage on its own rarely leads to action. Instead, it needs to be balanced with optimism and excitement. Now more than ever, we believe that's what's needed to fast track ocean action. That's so hard, Richard. It's really hard for me. It's really, I get outraged a lot, okay? Yes. I get outraged <laughs> a lot. And um, it's hard to maintain the optimism. It's personal work that I'm working on because I don't want to be one of those people that's naively optimistic and that uses that optimism to kind of like kick the can down the road. Like, it's all going to be fine. You know, It's don't worry about it. Um, the, the kids, the next generation, they'll take care of it, you know? Yeah. Um, How do you personally balance that? How do you, I I know you're an optimistic person, but you must also, when you're in the water and you see the garbage and you see the thing, you know, beautiful species going extinct, you must also be outraged. Do you have a a trick for maintaining your, your positive, you know, place in this world?
0: Well, I think it's, it's just understanding how the system works and, yeah, I mean, you study kind of success stories. So one of the success stories in oceans, and there aren't that many to be perfectly honest, but one of the success stories is is ocean plastics. Now, it's, I'm not saying it's a um, it's a success story in terms of how we've um, you know, solved the issue, but mm-hmm. it's a success story that um, this was an issue that no one cared about. It was just one of those dirty issues, but um, yeah, you know, it wasn't a popularist issue at all. So the scientists were, you know, um, really trying to communicate about this issue, and so were the conservationists really trying to communicate about this issue, but it was seen as a nice issue. But when suddenly it was kind of the creative industry got involved, and we got some great creative work, and then suddenly there was the celebs getting involved, and they were talking about the issue, and then suddenly it became popular. Um, so it became a popular cause rather than an environmentalist cause. And suddenly then you've got businesses wanting to get involved to appeal to that popular support. And then suddenly governments go, oh, these, there's votes behind this. And suddenly you had all this money that's poured into ocean plastics as a an issue, as in well over a billion dollars has been allocated to solve the issue. Um, And this policy, so just banning plastic bags, um, all sort of progress in the right direction. But it all happened almost overnight in terms of uh, environmental cause. And you realize there is this formula. And it is just having the excitement of having big brands involved, the celebs involved, um, and then optimism in terms of solutions so at the time, there was a, a 16-year-old boy in slat who came up with this crazy idea to clean up the the open ocean. And yeah. We all said, you know, as environmentalists and, and... Is that the Dutch kid? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay, yeah. And we all went, you're mad. That's not possible. And um, we were right. It isn't possible. But <laughs> it it sparked lots of other people's ideas. And then finally, they sort of did the ocean clean out in river bank, uh, in sort of river mouths. And it, it just it's it's people having the the guts to sort of come up with a crazy solution then often inspire somebody else to come up with a crazy solution that will work and And this is a 16 year old kid yeah exactly yeah and he just cold called the world exactly yeah and (laughs) that's kind of that's the excitement and that's the optimism if you know a kid can do that then anybody can do that oh absolutely absolutely
1: um the the plastic the ocean plastic thing I remember it it hit it was sort of like the the global zeitgeist really hard maybe somewhere between five and ten years ago in fact I got commissioned more than five years ago by a um, a studio down here in L A to write a film script a, a, a ho- an underwater horror movie based in uh you know the the one of the plastic patches right. Yeah. Because they thought this is a sellable thing, right? We want to do a movie about the plastic patch, but it's also going to be kind of like a, you know, a a, a scary movie in abyss kind of thing. It didn't turn out the script. I wrote the script. My writing partner, Scott Keneally, it's a great script, but it got buried in legal morass and I don't think anything will happen with it. But the point is there was a studio that looked at plastic in the ocean as a sellable topic, Yes, like this is so interesting to people right now that we can make that the backdrop for a film, and you know films are not cheap to make. That's a big investment, right? Yeah, um, and that's when I thought, wow, I guess people are paying attention. I don't know if a movie is going to help at all, but you know it it does in the fact that it's another story and it normalizes that setting, it normalizes the issue to people, right? Exactly. So in that sense, it does help a bit. Do you remember because your work? When I looked at your website, this popped into my head again and again and again. And I don't know if it's something you're familiar with, um, but The First Things Manifesto. Uh, it was written by, a, I think it was British designer, Ken Garland, way back in 1964. Does that ring a bell with you at all? I don't think so. It, it was a, it was a, it's not a, a huge thing, but it was a yeah. manifesto which railed against the sort of wasting of talent of creatives. You know it, it, and they were all bent on relentlessly convincing people to buy unnecessary junk right and yep. so a couple dozen signed on to this thing saying you know we can do better designers let's let's use our talents to do to do other things as well in 2000 the first things first manifesto was refreshed by Adbusters editor uh occupy co-founder cali Lazen, along with the late great one of my my creative heroes tibor kalman um So they did a new, uh, a refresh of that. Um, Can I read it to you? Ah, yeah, absolutely. It's a little long, but I I think, I think you might enjoy it. I think everybody might. This is the first things first manifesto 2000. We, the undersigned are graphic designers, art directors, and visual communicators who have been raised in a world in which the techniques and apparatus of advertising have persistently been presented to us as the most lucrative, effective, and desirable use of our talents. Many design teachers and mentors promote this belief, the market rewards it, a tide of books and publications reinforces it. Encouraged in this direction, designers then apply their skill and imagination to sell dog biscuits, designer coffee, diamonds, detergents, hair gel, cigarettes, credit card sneakers, butt toners, light beer, and heavy duty recreational vehicles. Commercial work has always paid the bills, but many graphic designers have now let it become, in large measure, what graphic designers do. This in turn is how the world perceives design, the profession's time and energy is used up manufacturing demand for things that are inessential at best. Almost done. Many of us have grown increasingly uncomfortable with this view of design. Designers who devote their efforts primarily to advertising, marketing, and brand development are supporting and implicitly endorsing a mental environment so saturated with commercial messages that it is changing the very way citizen consumers speak think, feel, respond, and interact. To some extent, we are all helping draft a reductive and immeasurably harmful code of public discourse. Uh, there's a little bit more. It goes yeah. on to propose a reversal of priorities in favor of uh, you know, different types of communication. Am I wrong in thinking that that just should resonate with you, that this is sort of the feeling I got a little bit from what you're doing?
0: Absolutely. And I think you know, this is you know, having the ocean as a client, you know, they... The ocean doesn't put briefs out to designers, and yet that is what is needed. You know, mm-hmm. design creates behaviour change. When done well, it's why brands you know spend so much building that brand through design. Um, and yet we haven't done that with the ocean. We've never built the brand of the ocean. And these are the skills that are missing. That means we we got into you know quite a big mess. Um, Whereas we should all be passionate about what is essentially the thing that that sustains all life on the planet, um, and it's these skills that we really need to bring in to to help achieve that.
1: So, does the Ocean Agency? Are you, do you ever look for talent for people to lend their or donate their skills to you? Are you bombarded by people saying, "I want to help"? Um, is it is it a good time right now to put out a call?
0: Absolutely. I mean, we we are a a relatively small not for profit, mm-hmm. um, and we rely on, on help. Um, right. you know, we very much love the you know the help of you know designers and, and creatives, and it's across the across the board from sort of um, musicians through to, to artists through to um, you know video um, editors, etc. Um, it's all very very useful.
1: So how do people, what's the best way for people to get in touch if they want to, if they're listening to this going, oh man, I would really love to help out, to donate some of my my skills and passion.
0: Oh, just reach out to me. So Richard at theoceanagency.org. Okay. Okay. Is that easy? Yes.
1: All right. Yeah. Well, the website looks so polished and professional. It looks like you could be the top of a glass pyramid somewhere. On an island, of <laughs> yeah. course, you're solar powered and you know wave power. Sorry, yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> that was actually a a web agency uh, almost oh. doing that. Yeah, you know, pretty much pro bono, um, oh, and helping us out. Guy. So we get a lot of lot, lot of help from creatives. Um, so is there is there
1: anything at stake here, though? I mean, you're talking about the ocean and and pollution and and climate change and everything, but you know if if we don't act on ocean conservation, is it, what do we lose? What do we lose as a planet?
0: (laughs) Well, people forget this. (laughs) I mean, it's the reason why we have... I mean, isn't it a big deal? (laughs) Yeah. The reason why we have life on on the planet is because of the ocean. It controls everything. It controls the climate. So the climate issue is an ocean issue. It controls the weather, whether or not we've got water to to drink, whether we've got oxygen in the air. Um, It's essential to to life that the ocean is stable and it is... um, uh, just f- it's 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 got to be stable and it's it, you would just got to be keep it healthy um, mm-hmm. the ocean works very much like the human body if you put too much heat into it which is what we're doing at the moment you then give a fever and systems start shutting down the first system to shut down is coral reefs and that's a million species it supports quarter of the life you know marine life in the ocean and that has huge knock-on effects in terms of what the ocean is able to do in terms of taking carbon out of the system and controlling climate change, for example. So there's all these things that um, really revolve around the ocean that people aren't generally aware of because ocean isn't really taught in schools.
1: I, I when I was younger, I saw commercials and and I, if I recall correctly, Shell or Chevron. They they pretty much showed me that they could you could just throw old oil barrels into the ocean and then they become reefs really quickly,
0: right? <laughs> yes, <laughs> do you remember those campaigns? Oh, there's yes. I mean, it's the ocean's <laughs> been a huge dumping site for the planet uh, for <laughs> forever, really. Uh, there's a an artificial reef that was off Florida made out of something like a million tires. Uh, Unfortunately, no no life could grow on the tires, so um, it's not that effective as an artificial reef. Um, Surprise, surprise. Yes, exactly. So (laughs) there's all these things that um, happen in the ocean that definitely shouldn't and have a huge knock-on effect that people just don't get to see because they don't go underwater. Do you have any thoughts on desalination plants? Um, Done correctly, I think they... They are becoming a necessity, so they just need to be managed well in areas where they're not going to have the greatest impact. They have a huge impact; um, it's it has to be said. But um, if they are managed well and placed well, I, I don't think there's any way of of getting around desalination plants. It's just how you dispose of the of the salt, right? Yes, exactly.
1: Yeah, yeah. Because a lot of folks think, ah, oh, you know, we can get fresh water from desal, but they they don't really, they're not necessarily aware of the fact that the byproduct of fresh water from salt water is a lot of salt. And so when you dump that near the plant, you're effectively killing that zone, right? So what are, the, what are the methods that people are doing? Are they just basically putting that extra salt on a barge and spreading it out farther away? Or how do they mitigate the damage?
0: Yes. And yeah, I wouldn't know kind of some of the latest techniques, yeah. but it's, it comes down to the economics of it and public pressure, yeah. whether you want that salt to be dumped on land or whether you know, it's going to be dumped in the ocean where it's going to have an impact. And if hey, we shoot it into space, sorry, we can shoot it into space. Can't we? Oh, we should be able to. Yes. I think that's what <laughs> Jeff Bezos
1: was talking about. Dude.
0: Yes, it is. It is. Yeah, a lot yeah. of salt <laughs>
1: <laughs> Shooting salt at the sun. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's a song. Jeez, <laughs> man. Um, I think the only other question I had for you that that's on this one's from John, you know, John Capone. Yes. Uh, fantastic. Really love that. He's on the super nice team and, and he brought you to us. He's wondering if there's any inherent conflict with working with large multinational corporate partners while you're focusing on conservation. Do you ever feel like you have to sort of make moral trade-offs? Is that ever a quandary?
0: Um, there's a slight quandary there, but I don't think we're going to solve these issues without multinational support. Mm-hmm. It's right. It's the the challenge is to get the big, powerful companies to really be working on the right side, and so um, that is a journey that a lot of companies need to go on. So you need to pick who the partners are um, very carefully. But these, you know, the the companies we work with, like you know, for example, we we team up with with Adobe um mm-hmm. and um, that is yeah obviously a company that doesn't have a huge environmental footprint in terms of um the you know the products they're producing um, but they can have a, an enormous amount of uh, impact in terms of influence you know in terms of getting governments to listen in terms of getting creative community to listen um and you know really inviting the creative community to get involved in in these issues so it's really important that we team up with influential brands to create the excitement that's needed in ocean conservation and ocean science. Um, but I would go you know, much further in terms of who we would deal with, because often it's the, the companies that have the solutions and the different kind of thinking, even though they may be causing environmental impact at the moment. So the mm-hmm. um, They need to go on the the journey, but we can really use the skill sets that they they have. An example of that was, you know, we actually worked with Mars, um, so the confectionery company, and, yes, obviously huge impact in terms of ocean plastics, but they brought their thinking to uh, coral reef conservation, coral reef restoration, which was a factory thinking. It was, okay, how can we do coral restoration in the cheapest way possible Um, using local communities and driving down that cost. And whereas a conservation organization would normally sort of try three different approaches and go, oh, that's good, um, they tried hundreds and brought down Mm. the cost to a tenth of the cost that the leading conservation organizations were able to achieve. And for me, that is phenomenal success because of that business thinking and that's what we're missing in a lot of kind of the solutions that we're working on at the moment is we're not bringing the, the business skills in that are desperately needed. Instead, we're often sort of relying on sort of volunteer support or um, just sort of almost traditional thinking in terms of ocean conservation rather than a well, field.
1: You bring up a couple of challenges there. You know, one is the the classic challenge in the nonprofit world, which is that, uh, you know, nonprofit executive directors, nonprofit leaders, you know they're often not offered the a competitive salary, right? So you're often not getting people who are business leaders or do have very particular advanced skill sets, right? because you just can't compete for the brain trust. Yes. Right? And, and in that nonprofit world, there's a lot of time people look at your books and go, oh, you've got too much money going to to your you know overhead your salary or whatever. and it's like I think that's a, a short-sighted way of thinking right? Nonprofits should have, the people trying to save the world should be hiring the smartest people in the world. Full stop. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Yeah, I don't care how much you have to pay them. The ideas they generate, they're smart enough that they can execute these ideas with no extra budget left over because they'll be able to get partners that'll pay for things, right? Who cares about your operating budget? Pay people, pay people a lot to save the planet. All right. That's just a personal passion of mine. Yeah. The second thing you brought up is working with a company like Mars. Mars is a company that has had a, a, a very mixed track record. You know, a, a lot, any of these big companies, Mars, Nestle, whatever. Nestle's a little different because they've got all their water stuff. Right. But, and a lot of people think of them as like, that's just kind of a, a, not a great company. Right. For what they've done. True. And if these big companies that have a track record of doing a lot of of, of destruction, a lot of damage can be lauded for the good things that they do do, it's the only way to change their behavior. And isn't that what we're after, you know? Or do we want to make sure that we always have an enemy? Like, again, right? We got to work with these people, show them that we can not only protest them, but also applaud them when they do right,
0: right? So- Couldn't agree more with that. And as soon as they start doing really positive action, um, it puts them under a spotlight. So, you know suddenly they need to um, sort of more rapidly address the the problems that they're they're causing. So they appreciate this, and they know the market is changing very rapidly. And so it does become a huge incentive. and then the competitors see them getting involved, and then that that sparks competition. And, and good people go, "Oh, I want to work at Mars." Exactly. And it starts to slowly
1: change the culture, the corporate culture, and you know or actually rapidly. Yeah. It can rapidly change corporate culture. So I'm going to say from the Super Nice Club, thank you for your work on the coral reefs, Mars. <laughs> <listening>. <laughs> but still, you could do a little bit about pushing so much sugar down the global throat. So there's still yeah. some work to be done, Mars. All right, still a little bit of work to be done, but <laughs> we'll take what you were doing uh, to, uh, to to fix things a little bit. We wrap these podcasts with two fun little segments. The first one is, you get to issue a challenge to anybody who's tuning in and all the members of the Super Nice Club. We just call it the Be Nice Challenge. Just something that people can do to make their world or the world a little bit nicer.
0: Yeah, I would say um, it is getting in the water. Um, it changes your life. And one of the biggest issues we've got in ocean conservation is no one sticks their head underwater. Um, you know, ninety-nine point nine percent of people don't dive and don't even s- snorkel. Uh, So just by getting in the ocean and having a look at this kind of incredible world that's uh, relatively accessible, I would suggest, yeah, everyone does it and it really doesn't matter where in the world you are on the coastline, just get in the water and have a look to see what's there and then you will become, I believe, a bit more passionate about it and, and hopefully want to make a difference. And then it is, yeah, the creatives out there getting involved, that's what's missing. In this field, we've uh, got an image problem with the ocean and it needs to change and we would welcome any support on that front.
1: I like it. Challenge accepted. I have not been diving in too long now. Uh, part of that is COVID. Part of it is where I've been geographically, but Catalina Island is, is close to where I am in Los Angeles and it's it's on the list of things to do. So I'm going to ramp it up. Excellent. I'm going to, when when I go inside... I am going to uh, mark it on the calendar. Check out what the what the schedule looks like uh, to get out and get in the water near me. That's that's a guarantee. You'll see. I'll send you. I'll send you proof after it happens. For the rest of you all, if you can't get in the water. You can still go on to YouTube and check out some amazing footage. Um, you can watch the film that Richard made. Um, what's the title of the film again? Chasing Coral. Chasing Coral. Chasing Coral. Free on Netflix. Check that out. Uh, just just. Think about the ocean a little bit more in your day to day life, because it really is hard if you're landlocked out of sight, out of mind. But it's, you know, when the when the world's climate is changing, if there are wildfires near you, it's all related, folks. It really is. You get to ask a question of me. That's how we wrap the show. One question. Any question. You're the host now.
0: Fire away. (laughs) (laughs) So do you believe we're all super nice at heart? Um,
1: I want to believe that all of us know, I do think that there are some people born with, you know, uh, you know, genetic mishaps or something in the way they're, they're wired, but the vast majority of people. Yeah, I do. I think that, that humans, um, are programmed to get along with other humans. We're programmed to love each other, to make love, to have families and being warlike, uh, doesn't promote that being cooperative does. And that's one of the defining features of Homo sapiens is that we're highly cooperative, highly verbal, right? Some of the of the species before us, uh, the other versions of humans actually had bigger brains. Apparently they were smarter, but they weren't as cooperative. Yep. They weren't as nice. And guess what? The cooperative, nice ones, we went out. Now we just need to extend that to to other species and to the rest of the planet. Yeah. So I do believe, I do believe that it's really challenging though, Richard, for me sometimes to believe that, you know, when we're peppered with the news when we look at things and um, see rivers filled with plastic and, you know, just see the worst sloth and you get caught up in everybody reporting about how crime is getting higher and et cetera, et cetera. And, ah, you know, we get very shrieky and shrill and we have a long way to go. But I believe in us. If I if I didn't believe that, um, God, what a life that would be!
0: Yeah, I that'd believe, be would be hard to live. I believe the uh, a lot of it is is around the the communication of this, and that's why I kind of loved it when I saw the the super nice club. Um, there's we've got to make the positive sell. Um, at the moment, it's the negative that's selling, and that's why it gets all the attention. And yet, you know, the issues aren't as bad often as as we make them out to be. You know, I live in an, an area where um, the ocean is as clean as it's been in 50 years. And yet we have big campaigns about saving, saving the ocean here um, mm-hmm. because that often generates funds and, and people perceive there's an issue when there isn't an issue. So what we need to do is focus that kind of negativity on where it's really important, but not focus on negativity all the time, which is uh, often the way at the moment
1: it's a hard it's 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 hard it's a challenge for all of us folks if you have any tips any ideas anything that you've done personally that has helped you overcome the barrage of negativity and kept you in a positive mindset little tips and tricks best practices fire away let me know i'd love to share those back out to the larger super nice community because everybody has uh, different ways of doing this for some folks, it's just, you know, meditating five minutes in the morning for other folks, it's exercise. I'm sure there's, you know, we read we, there's memes all over social media on, on how to, because we're desperate like as a species we're I feel like we're, there's a lot of depression out there these days. Right. So we're, we're, we're sharing best practices on how not to go crazy. Keep them coming. Yes. Share them with <laughs> us. All right. <laughs> Richard, thank you so much. Thank you for the work that you're doing. Uh, thanks to everybody on your team you know, we didn't talk about the people that are making the films, that are working on the campaigns, that are donating the time to help our client. But if any of those folks are listening to this podcast, thank you. Thanks a bunch. I, I know you you probably don't get a lot of gratitude for the work that you're doing um, because it's invisible work. It's thankless work. So from the club, we're thanking you for putting your energy in.
0: Well, thank you. We will talk with you soon, I hope. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. It's been fun. And welcome to the club, Richard. Welcome to the Super Nice Club. <laughs> Excellent.
1: So there you have it, everyone. A super nice conversation with super nice Richard Beavers. I hope you enjoyed that conversation, just as I hope you enjoy all the conversations that we have here on the Nice Work Podcast. If so, why don't you send it to someone, you know, just by email or social media or just in in talking, you know, you can always do that too. Just like talk to somebody in real life and say, hey, have you heard of this podcast? It's effective, too. doesn't have to be sent by text or digitally. Anyway, um, what else? If you want to check out that script that I wrote, give me a reminder. More importantly, why don't you check out those links in the show notes and look at the work that Richard is doing, has been doing. Watch the Chasing Coral documentary. And have an absolutely wonderful day, week, weekend. And be grateful for where you're at, what you've got. Because a lot of people in the world don't have that much. All right. Stay nice, everyone. I'm a
0: rifle and a certainness of war. i closing my account at the angry store. just want to be nice. And baby, that's the world. That's why I'm joining the Super Nice Club. So come on in. The water is warm. You and I can wait out this passing stone. Just want to be nice. And baby, that's the world. That's why I'm joining the Super Nice Club. And this super nice club So what? Big deal.